welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. David Taubin, Emeritus Clinical Professor and recently retired Chief of the Division of Pain Medicine at the University of Washington. Welcome. Hi, David. Um, I'm excited to have David Taubin on this podcast. He he is a long-term friend of mine. We both started in practice around 1984, 85, 86 era. And he was an internist. I was an orthopedic surgeon. We were both learning a lot about chronic pain. And relatively early on, we started sharing patients together. And he since went on. How many years ago, David, did you become chief of the pain service at the University of Washington? What, eight years ago, 10 years ago already? Uh, eight in the chief role, but after all my years in private practice, most of them uh, in direct. Uh, interactions with you. Uh, that was about 27 years, and then uh, now 12 uh, in an academic environment. Right. So Dave and I have been in it together. David, I think David's perspective, which has been, I think, extraordinary for the pain world, is that he spent so many years in the trenches in private practice as an internist specializing in pain, and just was extraordinarily knowledgeable about opioids and medications and how to balance them. And then right from the beginning, I am a referral surgeon, so I had really difficult patients in situations that were, I don't want to say difficult patients, because I think people are people, but they get in difficult situations in the pain world. So right from the beginning, David just taught me a way of addressing pain that was extraordinarily helpful to me. So David, welcome to the podcast, and I'm excited you're here. We're also really good friends. We'll try to keep this conversation somewhat civil, (laughs) if we can... That'll, that'll be up to you, David, not me. <laughs> I doubt that, but we'll go for it. Good. Anyway, David's one of my best friends in medicine. We, we, uh, we just have a great time together, but we've also just learned a lot from each other. So, hey, David, I just want to um, just go back to, you know, what year did you start practice, in private practice? Uh, 1982. Uh, let, me, let me dial it back just a little bit to uh, my, my peak interest in pain started as an intern. Uh, and my first rotation at the county hospital here at Seattle, uh, uh, Harborview Medical Center, uh, which has a lot of uh, people in very difficult circumstances as its baseline population. And my first day in my outpatient clinic, uh, everyone had pain. Uh, and many of them were on opioids, low potency, codeine. Um, Hydrocodone had just been introduced, and the idea of using anything more potent was unheard of. Um, and I was bewildered. I didn't know where to begin. Um, and my colleagues there uh, were passing their previous practices over to me. My first day, I'm inheriting all their patients. I didn't have the charts most of the time, uh, and I uh, was just winging it. And uh, though my attendings in medicine were the world's most famous, they write the books on medicine, uh, none of them had a clue how to take care of pain. But there was a famous clinic, the first pain clinic in the world by the world's founder of pain medicine as a science, John Bonica at the UW. And I had an opportunity to do an elective. So I proceeded uh, my first year as a second as a second resident, my first uh, elective rotation, uh, to uh, spend uh, eight weeks in the pain clinic there. And it was a remarkable, life-changing, career-changing experience. 
So I think that was my beginning in uh, the linkage between medicine as a chronic disease and chronic pain as by definition a chronic disease and how to put those uh, two together. Well, there's a paper out of Boston that shows only about 20% of physicians are comfortable managing chronic pain and less than 20% enjoy it. And right from the beginning of your practice, you just took on whoever needed to be treated. So it's an unusual perspective. And that's where it started to change my personal perspective around pain. What was the life-changing part of that experience for you? Uh well, in part, getting to know you as a, as a friend, and the, the professional relationship we had, that's had a difference. And also the really challenging patients I would see. Now to be in that time, uh, you know, early 80s, willing to take your hardest, you know, send me your most difficult uh, patients. And since so often uh, the label chronic pain doesn't say anything about what's really going on in the patient. It doesn't even give a body part that it's associated with. Um, and often it's dissociated from the imaging findings or has no relationship uh, uh, to ordinary biomedical explanations. Uh, it was a you know, nice detective job I had. Was, uh, and uh, uh, I, I think of Sherlock Holmes, who I'm a big fan of. He was a ophthalmologist, failed doctor, uh, and really? a hobby. And if anyone is interested in reading Holmes cover to cover, I would recommend it, his complete works, because it reads like medical history. That should right. be the record. Okay. It really talks about the person, their life, their family, their experience, their interpretation. Uh, and he would solve these great mysteries. Uh, and uh, my view, the mystery is in the history. And taking histories from patients, developing their relationship with patients that that generates following them over time creates a you know therapeutic alliance and allegiance very satisfying you know i'm a primary care doctor through and through it was not extinguished even being an academic specialty practice right uh, and i still look at people holistically to use sort of a loose term that is not understood but i would see them as a complete person looking at their baby pictures, their grandchildren pictures, their job, uh, like a family medicine docs typically do. Uh, I really knew them well. They trusted me, I trusted them. And so a lot of the early barriers uh, would fall away and it was so satisfying. These are people who had failed. Everything else came in really uh, hopelessly distraught and they would improve. Uh, and they would tell me I would be giving them their life back. And, right. uh, it wasn't because I was giving them opioids. Uh, it was because I was looking at the rest of their life and validating it and acknowledging their pain and giving them tools uh, to understand uh, that pain is threat, uh, but one that they can approach uh, uh, more effectively if they were given an understanding and the tools to accomplish that. So that's what I find interesting because your approach where you spend time talking to patients, you, um, it's not the norm these days. It's not actually, it's not been the norm for quite a while. And you're the one that turned me on this article by Dr. Francis Peabody in 1927. Could you give the audience just a gist of that article, what Francis Peabody said in 1927? Uh, yeah, uh, he, uh, surgeon, uh, was giving a, a medical 
school student lecture, which I thought was important because that was the reason I joined the U was to teach medical students about how to take this on. Uh, and uh, he has a uh, you know, extraordinarily uh, you know, famous uh, quote uh, that uh, 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 identifies uh, one of the essential qualities of the clinician is interest in humanity. For the secret of the care of the patient is in caring for the patient. Right. So the notion of humanity, I was a philosopher by undergraduate training and had an abiding interest in the human condition at large. He spoke right to it. And, you know, you're a surgeon. I can talk to you. I'm not behind your back, but, you know, uh, paying attention to the patient and focusing on who they are uh, is important for all of us. Uh, but uh, the uh, notion that a surgeon is telling medical students that they need to really care about their patient, not just treat the disease, but care about their patient, reverberated uh, in my mind. And I remember uh, when I ran into that, uh, I'll let you know, David, you were the first person I told about that line when I saw it, because right. you would like it too, from all the conversations we had. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, I mean, what's ironic these days, I mean, physician burnout approach is probably 60%, maybe even higher in some states. And what I find ironic is that medicine in general is somewhat mind-numbing repetition. I mean, there's only so many things we can do. And what makes medicine infinitely interesting is actually the patients. Every person is so individual and unique. So what's ironic is that probably one of the biggest factors that contributes to burnout is actually not talking to the patients but burned out doctors don't have the energy to talk to the patients. So it's sort of a horribly vicious cycle. And then patients don't feel heard. They get angry and frustrated. They get bounced around. And we know when you're angry, while well, your body chemistry goes off and you feel the pain more. And when you're angry, life just isn't good. So David, I want to jump all the way to the end of the story now and work backwards a bit. So you spent 12 years in academics with eight years being chief of the department, correct? Of the division, yes. Yeah, division. The in pain medicine department, but the division chief for pain. Right. And they've always, I mean, University of Washington was the first pain clinic in the country, right? Dr. Lozier and Dr. Bonica, et cetera. Actually, John Bonica, uh, who was a, uh, originally from uh, uh, Sicily, a U.S. immigrant and anesthesiology, uh, went during the Second World War and served uh, with the Allied Forces, of course, uh, as an American uh, uh, combat anesthesiologist. Uh, and he identified uh, the ability to alleviate pain with basically regional blocks uh, for extremity injuries. Uh, and really, among others, uh, found uh, a great satisfaction at uh, being able to relieve acute pain uh, directly by going after the structural uh, components of that. He moved to Tacoma, Washington after the, after the war, went into uh, private practice uh, as an anesthesiologist, um, and uh, uh, introduced that into his private practice. Uh, it's a reported story. His wife, Emma, I know all these stories from John Lozier, who is a great historian on matters such as these. Uh, she had a terrible time with childbirth really a, a protracted labor and watched his wife suffer miserably. And then he vowed to take on obstetrical anesthesia. Um, and uh, with that and his interest, he uh, wrote uh, a seminal paper, uh, the role of the anesthesiologist in the management of 
pain, uh, which was a breakthrough paper because it was really lived nowhere. About what year was that? Uh, oh my goodness. So this is Dr. Benica or Dr. Lozier who wrote yeah, this, this is John Benica. John Benica. Uh, uh, you know, I, John Lozier could tell you the day, the week that it was written. I'm not, uh, right. I can't recall these things. I think it was in the, uh, about late 1960s. It was so this did, but it really changed things dramatically as far as childbirth. Uh, well, the whole conversation about pain, that the anesthesiologist can do something about pain. It isn't a psychiatric condition right. or a, a surgical fix and it's all over. Um, uh, and he then actually joined the University of Washington right after it opened in 1959-1960 uh, and was the first chair of uh, the Department of Anesthesia here in Seattle at the University of Washington. Uh, and he built out an internationally famous pain program based on that interest. He wrote the textbook of pain. Uh, it's a massive volume. He single-handedly wrote it. It's like a multi-volume piece for multiple authors. He did it himself uh, uh, during the middle of the night. The man apparently did never needed to sleep even. Uh, uh, and he created uh, the first concept that pain is its own condition. It can be often it resolves following acute injury, but pain is of itself a disease uh, that when it's unrelenting requires a unique perspective. And the first person he brought on into his uh, uh, clinic uh, was uh, uh, Bill Fordyce, a clinic psychologist, because he realized these people had a lot of mind and mental events that were associated with the suffering and the frustrations and the failure and the social isolation and the accumulating losses. So he brought Bill Fordyce on board. Uh, he brought nursing on board uh, because they're the best people to take care of patients. They are, that's true. Leave it to the nurses to know what to do with patients. Uh, and then uh, as the rumor goes, he decided to make a multidisciplinary specialty. So we recruited uh, uh, all the chairs of the specialties, you know, major specialties at the time. Uh, and uh, rehab medicine was able to make it. Neurology was able to make it. Psychiatry was available. Uh, everyone else is out of town or busy. And that became the specialties. Okay. You know, what's you know what's fascinating is that the data, I mean, you know this way better than I do, but for years, the data on the effectiveness of pain programs is pretty good. Compared, especially compared to the data on the effectiveness of surgery. But pain clinic data has been pretty darn good for a long time. But it's not covered often by insurance, which is really, I think, an incredible tragedy. But yeah, if you treat the whole person, whatever, and everybody's got a different set of variables and have the resources to do it, it's pretty magical what you can see happen. So what I would like to jump to is you have a huge passion for teaching medical students and molding this history into your own your own passion. And I know you talk about listening in the story. Just, can you share with us just your passion now, why you're still so passionate, actually more passionate now, I think, than you were 20 years ago about treating chronic pain? Uh, all right. Well, uh, uh, you know, you can, passion can be infectious uh, and communicable. Uh, but once you're in a busy medical practice, my former group, really the top, in my view, of course, uh, the top internists uh, and other medical specialties and even later surgical specialties, uh, but they're busy. They're focusing on their specialty. And this is 
whole brand new stuff. And if my own colleagues would be sending me patients, I would evaluate it and come up with what I thought was a useful diagnosis, established a reasonable treatment plan, but they didn't want them back. They said, just your specialty, you take care of it. Uh, so I couldn't change them. They were friends, working hard, doing great work, uh, but they were not interested in learning something new that required a really different worldview. Um, right. As I got older, uh, in my 50s, my patients started to worry what was going to happen when I would retire. It was a regular question. I realized uh, that I may be looking older than I felt, uh, but my patients were asking me that. And I would say, oh, don't worry, there'll be new people to take it over. But I was making that up uh, because I didn't know who was going to take over. I couldn't convince my colleagues who I really respected. I navigated uh, recruitment efforts to bring more people on. There was just no one else. So I figured, because I'd been seeing medical students in my clinic as a uh, you know, adjunct faculty, uh, you know, just being a clinic setting, these are young people whose minds are still plastic. They're neuroplastic, not right. concrete yet. Uh, and they're willing to learn new things and are more likely to be shaped by uh, early knowledge that could transform their career. Uh, so my, you mentioned John Lozier, uh, very involved in medical student education in pain. Uh, he and I have had a long-term uh, collegial relationship even before I joined the U. Uh, but I spoke with him, uh, he was excited, uh, and that I was interested in teaching medical students. Uh, he was positively thrilled. Uh, and I had the support from John. Uh, and the Department of Anesthesia and Pain Medicine to focus on uh, medical student education. Uh, garnered support in the School of Medicine, uh, which is challenging because every piece of tissue in the human body has legions of experts and are competing for very scarce curriculum time. Uh, medicine is really more complicated now than when you and I were medical students, a lot right. of information. So to carve out any hours at all, uh, where the students would be required to get some of this learning uh, became actually a bit of a daunting uh, challenge. Uh, but we did very well. And it in part was driven by the opioid crisis, which was emerging then. And as you pointed out, the fact that under 23% of actually attending faculty, teaching residents felt comfortable with pain. Right, um, uh, and I was able to use that and be able to uh, demonstrate a necessity. We did some surveys of the medical students, uh, one of these uh, Canvas-based services, uh, and we asked uh, how much pain education they had. That was really awful. I mean, it was the, you know one to ten questions, uh, and we had an open text box uh, for just free text. Uh, and uh, the question was, uh, when you see a patient with pain, what do you do? And the best answer was, run. <laughs> really? Uh, and I took that, moved it, uh, support from the leader, some leadership there, and was able to launch uh, a, uh, you know, ro a very robust curriculum. And, uh, so, uh, so you're being serious. You say they, honestly the answer was people just didn't want to deal with it? run 
there was a report out by the uh, family medicine, uh, Roger Rosenblatt, who was one of my heroes in the primary care field in family medicine at UW. Uh, Roger ran the rural underserved uh, outpatient program, RUAP. And this is an opportunity for the Pacific Northwest region to train primary care workforce. UW uh, uh, manages five states education for their undergraduates. Uh, and there was a big rural program and they would keep diaries uh, every day, their thoughts and interactions. And over 90%, over 90% of the students in their diary reported that pain was awful, that their doctors were frustrated. And a, a majority felt that they were gonna leave primary care, family medicine practice because of pain. Because of pain? pain was just and it was the opioid it was actually opioids which was filling this the vacuum of nothing else and as you mentioned the absence of a multidisciplinary functional recovery model uh, right. for uh, allowing people to get their lives back uh, and get their focus off of the ow and onto the what next uh, that transition is complicated it's Doable, powerful evidence, as you state, uh, you know, 70% uh, reduction in uh, disability, 40% uh, reduction in costs. Uh, it's a huge health value system. Right. Uh, but it's been undervalued based on our reimbursement mechanisms. Uh, doing stuff generates uh, perverse incentives to keep doing stuff. Um, and even if it's not working, you just do more stuff. You can think of many of our shared patients. Uh, that you would see after they've had multiple fusions and you know, after five fusions, you'd think you'd stop getting them. Uh, but at that point, you get iatrogenic complications from the fusions. Uh, right. Uh, so uh, the challenge, therefore, is to change the whole stream towards recognizing this early in the career of students. Uh, uh, and there's been a big surge across the country. I attribute it not to myself alone, but uh, the fact that this was uh, an international crisis uh, in the uh, uh, in the uh, uh, countries that have more developed healthcare systems. Uh, uh, pain, back pain when you're in a poverty-stricken African country. Unfortunate uh, uh, that uh, there's no resources available, and your livelihood depends on just sucking it up, getting through your day, doing what you need to do. People don't complain to pain. They just carry on. Uh, but the new surveys show the pain incidence is simply as high. Uh, they just don't seek medical care for it because it's just not available. Um, so. Right, and you and I both know that we think the medical profession is actually somewhat creating disability. And I still want to still focus on the one thing which I think is one of your biggest contributions is, you know, talking to the patient. People want to feel heard. Why do you think that's so important? Well, in the area where people always want to be heard, uh, every single clinical interaction uh, you know, uh, starts with a conversation. And the conversation happens to the scheduling person at the front desk, at the MAs, the rooming, and then we as physicians walk in the room uh, and we're picking up the midst of a long conversation. Patients are, you know, in the prepared state, they have a, a, a question uh, that they want us to address. We, that's the first action. Then there's an interaction that we have with that patient. Uh, and then there's a transaction. So it's a three-step 
phase, uh, action, interaction, and then the transaction. And the transaction is a complex transaction. Uh, and how we manage that transaction uh, is going to clearly affect the outcome. Uh, if the patient doesn't believe anything we're saying, it's a waste of time. They're not going to do anything. Uh, right. Throw out your advice. Uh, if, uh, they, if your transaction is full of overwhelming cheerfulness and optimism uh, and it doesn't lead to that, they're going to be disappointed, angry, and frustrated. Um, so setting expectations early on, getting the therapeutic alliance built so you can get the therapeutic allegiance where they can you, they trust you is can be accomplished um, right. i see our second year medical students picking this up readily and the fourth year students who spent a lot of time uh with us in the clinic uh by the end of two weeks uh they listen in our telehealth program that we deliver around the whole region uh they are excited because when we finish that they come back so i knew the answer to that and these are right. senior practicing physicians with very complicated patients. They get it. So this is not rocket science. It's, no. It's like we brought up early, uh, Francis Peabody. Uh, it's uh, being a humanitarian. Uh, right. Uh, and it's, it's not being kind and courteous is one thing, uh, but being empathic is another. Uh, you know, and that you brought up the word empathy before. Uh, empathy is understanding what's happening. Right. Sympathy is feeling their feelings. And feeling someone suffering's feelings burns you out. So you mentioned burnout. You can understand what they're having as their experience. You don't burn out. You get right. satisfied because you heal. If you sit and cry with them and weep with them and walk out emotionally exhausted because you don't feel like there's anything you can do, then you're going to burn out. And there's lots right. of data on, uh, on the ability to differentiate between sympathy and empathy. And empathy is anyone can learn how to do that if they're interested and willing uh, to accomplish that goal. So David, in the big picture, um, I'd like to summarize what we just talked about. I mean, really, the, I think, and, I, and you epitomize this, that the, whatever other technique or philosophy you have, it still boils down to the patient-physician or patient-provider relationship. You have to know the patient. They have to know you. You have to have a real interaction. And what's difficult in medicine, and I think we've both seen the same thing in the last 10 years, is we're not allowed to spend time with our patients. We're in a production mode. And there's, these are complex problems. So we don't even have time to understand the extent of the problems, much less the time to really work through each one of them. And you're right, it doesn't take, it doesn't take that much time, but you do need some time to do this. And we're on this really incredibly difficult pathway. So what's, what David has done um, is that he's been very serious about developing a deep medical school curriculum. You say this, but really being taken up by the rest of the country, starting to, people starting to do this now? Uh, yes, uh, it's it's happening slowly, but you know the health systems issues you bring up are challenging, and right. uh, we I, we can chat about this at length at another time. Uh, but the job of the physician doesn't have to be doing all that heavy lifting. John Bonica, right. he brought on a nurse, he brought on a psychologist, he brought on a, 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 a OT, PT team. Uh, so we are the 
physicians are right. the conductors of the orchestra. Right. So even a conductor doesn't know how to play all the instruments. And right. A conductor doesn't play any instrument when they're conducting. Uh, right. They organize the care. Uh, and their time is, they should be better compensated clearly. Uh, you know, the value of a social worker, for instance, uh, can do all the heavy lifting uh, to help manage the, the barriers to people to get care, to get all their components of treatment, to engage them in care and all those steps. I just have to use the right language. The communication has to be clear. And all the people working with me have to say the same things in their way, in their language. So there's a coherent uh, understanding that we develop. And I hear back from my colleagues in other professions, well, it's not quite that way. And I listen and I respect what these people are saying because I learn as much from the social worker that I do from most medical chart notes that I can read and often what the patient will be willing to tell me. So, uh, you know, docs have, primary care docs, uh, nine problems typically coming in the office, preventative health measures they get graded on, get paid for that they have to cover. They have a 15 minute visit. Uh, the average time spent on pain is under seven minutes. Right. Um, and most of that is reading and documenting and managing uh, guidelines and rules and recommendations on that. They just don't have the time uh, to pull it off. So right. there are structural issues. There's advocacy work to encourage insurance plans uh, to provide reimbursement for the time that physicians and other more expensive providers uh, offer. Uh, and policy has to change. So right. this is a complicated issue that's not going to be solved by any one individual, uh, by any one program. Uh, but by an informed healthcare team that speaks in one voice uh, in, as an orchestra, uh, one concert, uh, uh, but that is able to communicate a, a, a full symphony of perspectives. Because we can change that. It can be changed. Policy is changing it's way too slowly, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, but I think, David, uh, we are actually the same birth year. Before the end of our lives, uh, we will begin to see some major transformations occurring. No, I hope so. I mean, we're both, I mean, I know you, you just stepped down as the head of the department, but that's sort of your mission with your 30% time is, is to continue this educational process, correct? Yeah, which is not only educating, it's policy and advocacy to right. get the educational time in. Yes, right. uh, and uh, I, I'm confident uh, uh, because of the coherent message. Uh, in fact, I'm going to compliment the work you're doing and your, to your listeners now, uh, maintaining an open mind to this, uh, uh, understanding pain. Uh, uh, again, I, wanna, I know we're on a timeline here, but another medical student comment. They're the smartest things I hear come out of the medical students, of course, uh, from the mouths of babes, uh, as, as they say. Uh, the, uh, uh, one of the students at the end of the month, I said, so what'd you learn? Uh, I already given your grade. I actually hadn't yet. They were going to do, do well. Uh, I said, so what'd you learn? Tell me three things. And I did this to 12 consecutive students because I was so shocked. And they all said the same thing. Uh, they may have talked amongst themselves. I don't know. Uh, first thing they said, these pain patients are really nice. <laughs> Right. That to it's me, sad. I mean, I know it's sad. I mean, they are. I mean, they are nice. They've, they've gotten beat up, but they are very nice people. 
and they, they feared them. Right. Run. Instead, they would get embraced. They'd be hugged by the patients. Right. Uh, no. Second thing, consistently. These patients are nice. The second thing was there's something you can do. Correct. They learned that. Poor right. So that these are real human beings, humanitarian, and as a physician, they're medical students, that there's actually something you can do. Right. And the third was, I can't believe I almost didn't take this course because it was an elective. Right. Uh, so that keeps me going. And right. hopefully I'd be able to transfer this energy and passion, uh, uh, which is truly turned out to be kind of mission driven at this point. Inspired by you, David, I want to thank you for that. You keep me going. <laughs> You're always on fire <laughs> and holding me, my, my feet to your fire and your flame. Well, it goes both ways. I mean, one passion David and I both share really deeply is that you know, take people without hope and it's not that hard and you give them back hope and they start to thrive. It's incredibly rewarding. And for me, I mean, we both share the same thing that, you know, pulling, helping somebody pull themselves out of the hole of chronic pain is probably the most rewarding thing you can almost do in medicine. It's been remarkable. So David, thank you um, very much for your time. And we just barely touch the surface of things that we could talk about, but uh, connect with the patient, help them connect with themselves giving them hope, giving them a chance is not that hard and is consistently doable. So thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David Talbin, for being on the show today and for sharing how he evolved his holistic approach to the treatment of chronic pain and how he is training a new generation of physicians to follow that same approach. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.